You're listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast, where we teach you to stay away from those who say things like this. The first point that I would talk to you about being empowered to lead uh, is this, this idea. I want you to know that first, number one, you were born to lead. So you're like, I, I don't see myself as a corporate CEO. I don't see myself as, a, as necessarily an entrepreneur. Some, you do see yourself as that. And you feel like you're trapped in a dead-end role, in a dead-end job. And that you feel that there's more. I, I believe God's going to speak to you and give you visions. He's going to give you dreams about what's next. And then he's going to show you how to gain wisdom as you prepare to move into that. And those who say this. Baptism is intended to be a symbol that symbolizes death into life. It's like a burial followed by a birth. Right. Or this. The Bible says when Jesus held up that bread on that night with his disciples, he just simply said, this would symbolize my body. As well as those who have never studied Greek but want you to believe they have. God's plan is for you and I, his people, to live and walk in power. Now this word power is the Greek word dunamis. Dunamis, it's where we get the word dynamite. It's explosive. It's time now to join your hosts, Pastors Devin Kearns and John Bruss, and whoever else they invite as they continue their quest to train you in properly dividing law and gospel and staying away from the sacramentarians. Well, all right. I am so excited to be in Wichita, Kansas, with two wonderful pastors down here. It's Pastor Boyle and Pastor Lovett, who are making their inaugural debut on The Plucked Chicken. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Uh, Now, Pastor Boyle, just real quick, you've got a very similar background to mine, as in that you were well a part of the evangelical tradition. You weren't raised Lutheran. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's a little bit different because I was actually raised Catholic, but I ended up going through a heavy dose of Campus Crusade through college, and that was... Uh, let's say, my gateway into the Lutheran Church. And then, Pastor Lovett, what about you? Yeah, I actually share your background. I was raised in the Southern Baptist Church What in South Texas. I didn't know that. Yeah, and uh, interestingly, I understand our topic is on First Peter today, and that's pretty much why I became a Lutheran, so it'll be interesting. Amen. Well, you know, what I've got for us is two guys, two pastors. They're really of two different stripes, even though they're in the same junk drawer that I call evangelicalism. Uh, You've got one guy who is going verse by verse through the scriptures, and he has come upon 1 Peter chapter 3, where it talks about baptism, and we're going to listen to him deal with this subject, and then we're going to shift gears over to your typical evangelical trendy guy who's going to be talking about the same thing. Sounds good. Yep. And just so our folks know... This guy is going to be preaching for about 45 minutes. I have fast-forwarded to the place that I believe is most pertinent and that I was waiting for him to talk about. So we'll pick it up where he is right now. Which is probably why Peter is going to bring Noah into the discussion here in this next paragraph. Now, the paragraph we're going to enter into... Chapter 3, verses 17 to 22, is probably the most difficult paragraph in the book of 1 Peter because 
Peter doesn't give us a lot of explanation. We have what he gives us here in the text. He doesn't give us a lot of background. He doesn't tell us why he's talking about these specific issues, why he brings this up. So even with the context we have here, there's not a lot to go on. In addition, the things that he mentions here are not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. And so we can't cross-reference with any other passage to understand what Peter is referring to here. This is the only place this is really mentioned. And so we're left in the dark with quite a bit here. So we're going to attempt to unpack this and talk about some of the details and attempt to understand a little bit of why Peter is bringing this up and to come to some kind of conclusion as to what he wants us to understand about it. Um, but admittedly, we're going to be left with some questions that we really can't answer. And so if you want to talk more about some of the details, because it gets a little technical in here, and I'm not going to get into all of the technical grammar and lexical and grammatical issues um, that, that come up here, if you'd like to talk more about those, or if you have questions or, or further thoughts about this, I'll be happy to talk with you afterwards uh, to go into more detail with that. So, before he continues, I find it very interesting that a pastor of any stripe begins to come upon a what we would call a sede doctrinae of a important doctrine and then kind of say, well, there's so many questions here, there's so much to talk about, and if you want to talk about it later with me, I mean, I'm not going to get into all the details, but I am happy to have a conversation with you, quote-unquote, offline. What do you think about that? It seems like he's got something he wants to say and is not really ready or willing to wrestle with what it is that the text actually says in front of him that he wants to deal with with everyone. So it's a disservice to his entire congregation, really. Uh, yeah, perhaps. And and yet at the same time, I can, I can understand this and that there are some details that may be unnecessary for the regular proclamation. But at the same time, I, I do think it's a way of copping out to say what he wants to say. Let's let him continue. We're coming out of verses 13 to 16, where Peter is saying that if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and then we'd walked through the things that he says about those who suffer for the sake of righteousness. And again, we're talking about suffering for the sake of righteousness, for your faith, suffering for the cause of Christ, not the other general types of suffering. So we are to not be afraid, we are to sanctify Christ as Lord, always being ready to make a defense or to give an answer for the hope that we have, to keep a good conscience, that is, be obedient to God, good behavior in the face of this, so that they, the ones who are opposing us, are put to shame in this. And so now we get to verse 17. For it is better, if God wills it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water, 
And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So he starts off here, verse 17, the first part of verse 18 are pretty straightforward. It is better that we, if we suffer for the sake of Christ, that we do so in obedience to God rather than in disobedience to God. Four, and he goes back to Christ as our example, Christ also suffered unjustly. He died for our sins. Did he die for his sins? No, he was innocent. He was just and righteous. He died for the injustice and the unrighteousness of us. He suffered unjustly in his death on the cross in order that he might bring us to God. This is going back to the end of chapter 2 where he talks more specifically about the cross of Christ bringing us salvation. So Christ suffered unjustly that he might save us, bringing us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And so the end of chapter 18 and into 19 is where this gets a little more difficult and interesting. One, one quick point on this, Devin, is that Luther makes a phenomenal point in his Babylonian captivity of the church, I think is where it is. Maybe it's against the heavenly prophets, actually. But the idea that the cross is where he wins salvation for us, but it's not where he brings us into it. If that, if that makes sense, Luther makes this phenomenal point to say that the cross is where the salvation is won, but it is, in fact, the sacraments through which he brings us to it. And that's where it's delivered. Exactly, which is a huge point when it comes to the troubled conscience, which seems to be what this passage is about, the, the good conscience. The good conscience is made clean, and where we are finding our comfort in where God delivers what he wins to us, which is an incredibly sacramental passage. Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient. When God was patient and kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. Okay, so what is he talking about here? The end of verse 18 and into verse 19 that Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. So, where did he go? When did he go? And who is he talking to? Are questions that come up. There are three basic interpretations of this passage, of, of this verse and a half here, um, that have been put forward. And so I'll mention all three of these to you. Some believe that what Peter is referring to here is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the, what we might term a pre-incarnate Christ, so before his incarnation as Jesus, back in the days of Noah, that Christ went and spoke either to Noah or through Noah to the wicked generation of people. So that the, the generation, the wicked generation in the days of Noah, that Christ is either speaking to Noah or he's speaking through Noah to them about what God is going to do. And so this is, this is one interpretation of this. So Christ is speaking 
back in the time of Noah to that generation. Have you ever heard that? I can't say that I have. I haven't either. I'm not saying it's wrong. I mean, it is, but I'm, I'm not suggesting that whoever uh, put it forward was, you know, smoking crack, but uh, I've never heard that. Well, it seems odd because right before that, it says that he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, which is how elsewhere the apostles speak of his resurrection, that he's now, you know, we've, we regard him no longer according to the flesh, St. Paul says, but according to the spirit. So it seems like the verse right before that would preclude this type of interpretation. Well, in this guy's defense, this guy preaching, he will abandon that. He, he, throw that, he throws that one out. It's, it seems evident because he's going to say there are three types or explanations. And so he wants to dismiss the first two and then run with the third, probably. Well, let's see. A second interpretation is this, that... Between his death and resurrection, so Christ died, and before he was raised in that three-day period, during that time, he descended into hell, or into the realm of the dead, and he then spoke to the people there. Now, there are variations on this as to which group he was speaking to. Was he speaking to the wicked generation? Was he speaking to the Old Testament saints? Was he, who, was he speaking to everybody? Um, there are various variations on who he was speaking to in this one. But the basic idea is, so between his death and resurrection, he descended into hell and proclaimed to them. I know we get really confused with all these, these terms, but I mean, wouldn't you say it is Hades instead of hell proper? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Hades is the place of the wicked dead. The realm of the dead. Right. So as opposed to, say, uh, Dives would be there, the rich man, uh, whereas Lazarus uh, would be at Abraham's bosom. The realm of the dead, Hades, this idea, this harrowing of hell, which I think is fascinating, this second opinion, and uh, the second view, in fact, I think is the traditional view in many ways. It is the place where the saints, such as Abraham, are waiting. And so you, you do have this sense in which until Christ rises from the dead, there is this realm, whether we think of it as like a prison house where everyone's in their cages or, or however it works, the idea is that Christ does descend at the point after his death, he descends into hell or Hades, this place of the dead, and runs through. It's kind of like he grabs the keys from the strong man after having beaten him up, unlocks each of the doors, and and this word for proclamation is in fact not a typical preaching uh, word for preaching in terms of a law, but of a of a good news of an announcement that that the victory is won, and and sort of letting everyone out and joining him in the resurrection. So that's the second option. The third option is that in his resurrection, so after his death, when he is resurrected, in his resurrected body, he then goes and proclaims to those in prison. Either the generation of Noah's day or possibly the disobedient angels. It's interesting in this last one, where I might disagree with the second one, is that I, it is 
in my opinion, the resurrected Christ that preaches, and I know he's about to get into the baptismal section, but it's interesting that he keeps making a distinction or, or a query about whether or not this is the generation of the Noatian flood, or if it's everyone and so forth. But if if we take the Apostle Peter's words that are coming up, until the resurrection of Jesus, which is the completion of the flood for grace, it is still Noah's day. So even up until that point, Noah's blessing that God will save through man, because mankind was saved through the righteous one Noah, um, is complete in Jesus. So to say it was just the people that you know, temporally lived during Noah's day, I think is to miss the, the point of it, that before the resurrection of Jesus, it is the day of Noah, and now he completes this, or it's completed in him. If you have heard others and you want to talk about those, I'll be happy to talk with you about those. Any of these three is okay. So you may choose whichever one makes the best sense to you in, in understanding this passage and, and use that one as your understanding. Any of these three are, are perfectly legitimate as far as our understanding of the passage and are, have been put forward by um, Bible scholars and theologians and, and vetted over the years and, and banted around and, and discussed. So, Really? Yeah, so much, uh, Pastor Boyle, for your assumption that he was getting rid of the first <laughs> two right. and focusing on the third one. They're all okay. Uh, apparently, it doesn't matter what you think. All right. right. Bible scholars have said, and so all of them are fine. But even yeah. if you find another one out there, you mm-hmm. can you can latch hold on that one, too. It'll be interesting to see if he says the same thing about baptism now saving us. Oh, love it. <laughs> Um, I will tell you my preference here as we go through this. So the pre-incarnate Christ speaking through Noah, I don't prefer that one because of what he says here in this passage at the end of verse 18, that Christ, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he also went and made proclamation. What Peter seems to be saying here is that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, and then he goes in that and makes proclamation. So it seems to be centered around his death and resurrection, and that is when he goes and makes the proclamation, not in the spirit past tense way back generations ago. Um, And so with the grammar that's put forth here at the end of verse 18 and moving into 19, I don't think the, at least I don't prefer uh, that, that particular option that he spoke uh, to Moses or through Moses, and that's what Peter's referring to. So I, I agree with him in that this text is not about that. On the other hand, I don't think there's any problem with saying that the Lord does speak through Noah, and that whether it's the pre-incarnate Christ or whatever, I don't think we have any of that in the text itself. But we do have Noah as one who is called by God and given in that way to to proclaim what he's doing. And so there's there's no problem in saying that Noah did preach to the people. I think he's right, though, to say that that's not what the thrust of this text is about. Similarly, for a similar reason, um, I, I don't prefer option number two, that between his death and resurrection, he descended into hell or Hades, the realm of the dead, and spoke to them there. That's a popular idea that was um, popularized by the Apostles' Creed, Uh, which is a 5th century creed, and to that creed was added this idea that he descended into hell. No, no, double no. What? Triple no. What? 
<laughs> quadruple no. A, it's not a fifth century creed. B, it's not a popular opinion. It's the traditional opinion. And so it's not necessarily popular, meaning modern. It's not modern. It is quite ancient. Curious to see what he has to say about... Well, you know what he's going to say. I mean, both both of you having come from this tradition. I mean, this is a, a place that says creeds are bad, that this is a bad thing. He's, he's almost painting it already as this is why we don't say creeds in church. We have sure. no creed but sure. the Bible, yeah, even right. though that's a creed. It, it is a creed. One of the things that all Lutheran pastors have to go through is Francis Pieper's Lutheran dogmatics, or Christian dogmatics. And there he, he is very careful to s- s- kind of slow this whole process down and, and first say in terms, he dies, he is buried. In that burial, the first thing he does is he vivifies. Having come alive, the first thing he does then is descend with his flesh into the realm of Hades, the realm of the dead, proclaims this message, this sort of victory lap, more or less, and then comes the resurrection and is rising again in the flesh, again in the flesh, for his people here on earth, and then on the 40th day ascends to heaven. Well, on saying that, I don't think you're going to like what this guy has to say next. Um And so that has been a popular understanding of this passage since that point. That idea that Jesus descended into hell is not found in the New Testament. That's something that we get out of the Apostles' Creed. Or it is here. That's what blows me away. How can he say that? He just read it. (laughs) And guess where it is? In the New Testament. He set this whole thing up at the very beginning of of when we began his... uh, is excerpt that uh, what we're going to say here doesn't say what it actually says. I mean, he set the entire thing up that way. So he, he gets to kind of pick and choose what is actually said and then what's before him that he'll submit to. Well, and the thing that always blows me away is when you say something like, it only says what it says here, here, as if to say yeah. that that's not enough. Right. Like, we've got to have 20 other verses. Oh, 20's not enough? Yeah. We need to have 25 other verses to cross-reference this. Yeah. No, that, this, this is what it says because this is what it means. Yeah, amen. It was after the Apostles' Creed um, for particular theological reasons at the time, basically to try to figure out where Jesus was during that three-day period and to answer some other theological questions that we won't get into this morning. Oh, of course. We're, we can't get into that. We, we just can't, can't go there. But if you want to go out for, uh, you know, to IHOP afterwards, I'm available. And I love how degrading he is to the term theological. You know, for theological reasons, it can't be this, because those are some highfalutin or non-scriptural things. But it's not, it doesn't come from Scripture. It's not in this passage. It doesn't say here that Jesus descended. It says he went. There is a, a, ver, a verb for to descend in Greek. Peter doesn't use that verb. It says he went. Now, he could go to the underworld or to Hades or hell, but it doesn't say that he descended. Similarly, he, uses, he, he went to prison to speak to them which is a word that is never used anywhere else in the New Testament of hell or Hades or the place of the dead. There are other words for those that are normally used. So Peter doesn't use those terms here. It says Jesus went, 
And it also says that Jesus went after what he's saying here in verse 18. You were going to say something, Pastor Lovett? Yeah, about the, the term prison. It might be true that that word is not used, although I'm not sure that it's not. But certainly the idea of being a prisoner is everywhere. So St. Paul even says that he ascended, he took captivity captive. You know, And there's several other places. The sun sets you free, you are free indeed. All these are prison terms or prison ideas. So just to, again, say that just because the word is only used once, therefore somehow it can be dismissed is utterly ridiculous. And it is prison. Yeah, it is prison. The guard, the... <laughs> Yeah, it's the prison. The end of verse 18 is not, I don't think here, a, a contrast between his body and his spirit. Um, he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Peter doesn't use the, the, the words that we would normally want him to use for making that contrast between his body and his spirit. Additionally, when Jesus was raised, it wasn't his spirit that was raised. It was a bodily resurrection. And so to make the distinction between body and spirit here does some injustice to the grammar. It also does some injustice to what the resurrection was. Jesus was raised not as a spirit. He was raised as a body. It is amazing how he is telling the apostle Peter that he has completely <laughs> messed up the resurrection of our Lord. It is, that is quite gutsy of him. And so I think the distinction that Peter is making here in what he says at the end of verse 18 is that Jesus put to death in the flesh is, is talking about his, the physicality of his incarnation, that he came in physical form to this earth and he was put to death in that sense because he was physically there. He was raised in the spirit, that is in the eschatological realm of the spirit, he was raised physically. And so he is, he is contrasting the two um, parts of the existence of Christ, as it were, in his incarnation, in his flesh that was put to death, and in his resurrection by the Spirit, or in the Spirit, that he was raised. Clear as mud, huh? Thank God, though, that he wants to emphasize the resurrection of the flesh. Sure. Flesh. Okay, fair. I'll take that. Yeah. In that resurrection, he then goes and proclaims. And so I think the, between his death and resurrection descending into hell, I don't think that's what Peter is referring to here. So I prefer the third option, that in his resurrection, Christ went and spoke to or proclaimed to the spirits now in prison. So I was right. The spirits who were, verse 20, once disobedient when the patience of God was kept waiting in the days of Noah. So this has some connection here to Noah. And again, we went through that quickly and there's a whole lot of detail in there um, that gets very technical. If you want to talk more about that, I will. So any of those three possibilities are fine. I prefer the third one, um, that Christ in his resurrection went and spoke to this group. Now isn't it interesting though how the creed it leaves no wiggle room for these these other interpretations. Yeah, we confess the faith, the truth that is given by St. Peter. But why is he bringing up Noah here? And, and this is another interesting one. He doesn't explain why he connects this back to Noah, why he's connecting Christ and Noah. 
Um, it's interesting, however, that at the time Peter is writing this, there were four separate flood accounts or flood stories that were well known in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, which is where at the beginning of this book, Peter says he's writing to those churches in Asia Minor. These are the church, the same area where John will write the book of Revelation about those seven churches. So this is a very um, uh, well-known and interesting area of church planting and church growth during this time period, the first couple of centuries here of the church. And interestingly, in that area, the story of Noah was well known. There were four other flood stories. They didn't have the same theological emphasis as the Genesis account of the flood, but they had some similarities in that you have a flood that kills everyone, and this one man is brought through in a boat through the, safely through the flood. Now, sometimes he does this on his own. Sometimes he does this with the help of the gods. There are different reasons for why the flood and so forth and so on. But there are similarities and differences with the biblical story. But the flood idea and the man that comes through the flood was well known in Asia Minor. And Noah was well known, even by the Gentiles of the time period. Uh, we've discovered um, a number of different Noah coins that were minted during this period. They have Noah and his wife on one side and the Roman emperor on the other side. And this happened through at least five Roman emperors of the time period. So for some reason, Noah is an important figure in this area of the world when Peter is writing this. And I think this is why Peter chooses here to connect this idea back to the story of Noah. And it's pretty boring here, but uh, you know we're we're waiting for him to get to the baptismal text. This sure. is what this is all about. So he's just setting it up here. Sure. And he's going to make some comparisons. There's a parallel between Noah and Christ and and the people, his audience here, his readers in the church that he's talking about here. So I think that's why he chooses to bring the story of Noah in here. He doesn't. Again, he doesn't tell us. We're guessing based on what we have um, seen historically from the surrounding time period. But he brings Noah, so Christ is the one who is dying for our sins, and then he brings the, the uh, Noah story into this, that God in his patience kept waiting in the days of Noah, this is the middle of verse 20, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. The water here, I think, then leads him to the topic of baptism. So verse 21, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. That phrase in itself right there has caused a lot of discussion amongst believers in the church. And why is that? Well, like anything of theological significance, it brings great discussion because our flesh doesn't want to believe the Word of God. It is interesting the way he's setting this up. He's setting the Scriptures up in darkness that might be revealed according to what we know or don't know historically, rather than simply confessing what the Scriptures confess, which would be light in the darkness. Furthermore, this idea of correspondence, I think, is interesting to see where he goes with it because... The word for correspondence here is, in fact, antitype. And so 
You have here with baptism, which now saves you, locating the salvation through the baptismal waters as an antitype. And so it does bring this whole language of type and antitype into the conversation. I don't know whether he'll go there or not, and we'll discuss that when or if he does. And here's an example of where, if we just read the context, it will answer those questions and keep us on track. Is Peter saying that the water of baptism is necessary for salvation? Is that what Peter's saying? I don't see the word necessary here, and yet, at the same time, perhaps he is. Sure, it would be somewhat like marriage um, in a Christian biblical perspective, marriage is necessary for the procreation of children, but we wouldn't say, hey, I'm going to get married because that's necessary so that I might have children. It's assumed into it. So baptism now saves you, assumes the necessity, or at least the inseparable corollary between water and salvation. Well, yes and no. Because what does he say? Baptism now saves you. Corresponding to Noah being saved in the ark through the waters of the flood, corresponding to that idea, baptism now saves you. If we stop there, we would be confused and we would be theologically incorrect. Why, why would you be confused? That, that blows me away. We would be confused if we stopped right there. Because we would think then that perhaps by baptism we are actually saved. Oh. As if God would actually do his saving work through a physical through means. That. Yep. Mm-hmm. He explains what he means by baptism in the next phrases. What does he say? Baptism now saves you, not the washing of the water, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. So his first caveat, baptism now saves you, but it's not the removal of dirt by the water from your body. It's not the action of the water. It's not the ritual of the baptism. It's not the actual physicality of what you are doing that now saves you. It's not the ritual that saves you. Well, then in what sense does it save you? Well, he tells us. So it's not this physicality, not the ritual, not the water itself, in whatever form of baptism you engage but instead an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does he mean here? An appeal to God. So it's not the ritual, it's not the water itself, it's not the washing, it's not that whole idea that saves you. Instead, it's the appeal to God. Well, since the beginning of the church, baptism has been an important part of the salvation of believers. And since the beginning, there has always been a pledge involved in them. That is, the one being baptized is asked a question or asked to make a statement. They are asked why they are being baptized or if they believe in Jesus Christ for their salvation or they're asked to make a statement about their faith. And the one being baptized then answers or makes this statement. I am here today to be baptized because I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior. So clearly, uh, infants are, are out of this, huh? Not only that, but he is 
totally eschewing how, in fact, baptism in the early church operated, partly because he doesn't want to say the fact that what was actually being said at their baptism was the Apostles' Creed, that this is, in fact, the very words that are being confessed. And yes, there are questions asked, do you renounce the devil? Do you renounce all of his works? Do you renounce all of his ways? Yes, yes, yes. Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? Yes, I believe in God. And, and so each of these three renunciations of the devil are matched with three professions of faith or confessions of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is what that creed is. There is some statement of faith. There is some statement of the reason and the belief of the individual. And this is what Peter is referring to here. It's the word can be understood, the Greek word here can be understood as request or pledge, and both of them fit the context here. The person be baptized is making a request to God for salvation. So if to reverse it, if I were to say to someone, how do you know you have a clean conscience before God, what should they answer? Well, I've it's been cer- baptized. It's certainly not because I had water poured over me, but it's because I said some things, oh yes, and water was poured over me. Uh, he makes a big deal out of the removal of dirt, which of course would be that this ceremonial cleansing of the body to be clean, to enter into the Holy of Holies, and this is done away with by the resurrection of Christ and his body. But the church has never been confused that it's a washing of dirt. It's always been a washing of the person's conscience and of the person who is unholy into holiness. Or they are making a pledge that they are believing what God has done through Jesus Christ for their salvation. So in his sort of nitpicky way of what is or is not said, I don't see faith or what I believe ever being mentioned in this passage. Right. Never, never does the person say what I believe or what I have come to understand or, or the faith that is within me. Or confessed. None of that. So if I want a clean conscience, I have to have the church baptize me. It comes from outside, from God, from the church, and not from what I think I believe or desire. Either way, that whether the person makes the request or makes the pledge, this is what Peter says saves you. What is it that saves you? Baptism now saves you. Not the physicality of the act, but the request or the pledge of faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ that is behind the whole event, that is what saves you. Yeah. Yeah. Or no. 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 Why doesn't Peter then say, therefore the application of water is unnecessary? And therefore make your strong confession. Yeah, and then which baptism? So if, if the application of the ritual of washing of water is unnecessary, then why did anybody do it after Jesus was baptized in the Jordan? If it's, if it's all apprehended through some sort of metaphysical only way, then why was baptism as a ritual ever continued, particularly by the apostles who would never want to confuse the faithful? And then not only that, for the emphasis that he laid on the physicality of Christ rising from the dead, (laughs) why does he immediately run away from any physicality here? So if we understand what Peter is saying here in the context of what he actually says, is he saying that you must be baptized in this way, that there has to be a physical act of water in order to be saved. He's not talking about the physical ritual, is he? He's talking about the faith in Christ behind 
the physical act of baptism. No, no, yeah. no. Well, Pastor Boyle said it clear as day. Just everything he has just said is not in the text. And the fact that he's running away from the physicality of it is, I think, revealing of what his own faith is, which is why does Christ need to rise from the dead physically if the physicality has nothing to do with it? I, I think this is totally missing the point of what St. Peter is doing here. Well, I totally agree with that, but I would also add, you know, I'm grateful that this guy at least covers this. I mean, I can't tell you how many impastors that are out there that don't even touch texts like this. It doesn't fit the the whole thing that they're trying to create. So, I mean, I get it. I mean, he's still wrong, but at least he covers it. He does. And yet, at the same time, he covers it in such a way that, yes, there are those that believe this sort of thing. Those are the other options out there. Right. But that is not where he stands. And so, in some ways, he doesn't need this text at all to say what he wants to say. And I don't know where he's getting this idea of pledge, and I don't know what he means by that. That that is, uh, this this word is certainly a a word for even prayer. I mean, there there is not the language of what we might hear dedication or pledge that way. I don't know where he where where he goes with those words, but this is certainly the perhaps offering of oneself, but it is specifically through the flesh, through the waters, through the baptism. Now, baptism is extremely important. Otherwise, he wouldn't say it this way. And the rest of the New Testament backs him up on that. But it is the pledge or the request made by the person being baptized that is the process of salvation. Appealing to God, salvation comes from Christ through what he has done, to the one who makes the pledge or the request. Circling back, this goes back to what you said, Pastor Boyle, in regard to they acknowledge the way salvation has been won, but they won't acknowledge the way salvation is delivered to you personally, individually. Exactly, and and the idea seems to be very much more focused on myself, on what I am doing. Which is interesting because in when he does mention Noah and the eight persons that were brought safely. So it wasn't even Noah's actions. They were brought to safety. Passively. Passively, right. Our, right. our Lord does it all. Yeah, right. And so this is what Peter seems to be saying here very clearly. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here the idea of the good conscience is the same one that it was earlier. That is, our obedience to God is a part of that. That God in Christ saves us for this good conscience, this good conduct or obedience to him in that sense. So I think Peter is very clear here he, he is very clear, yeah. but Amen. you are not. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> is, is the clean conscience how I stand before God, or is it a, a clean conduct of what I am doing before it, God? It sounded like the latter, did it not, it Pastor Lovett? Yeah, it certainly did. And it's interesting, of course, this ought to bring to mind Noah and the entirety of that narrative, that Noah is the righteous one, the righteous one, and so earlier when he said, we, we're not told why Peter connects Jesus to Noah. Well, if 
if you it knew, was because some coins yeah you're right, were, right were found if you knew the text it would be because noah was the righteous one and when he comes through when he is brought passively through the flood he and his family they stand before god then as those who have a clean conscience against all the other ones who are now dead in their unclean conscience so the appeal to a clean conscience is still a utter dependency upon god's mercy and grace that he delivers to those whom he chooses. And furthermore, with Noah, it doesn't say anything about what he had done that earned him the favor of God or anything. It's simply that the Lord had found favor in him. Right. And there, and it's, again, an utterly strange, and as we look to see what would God find in Noah, the answer is who knows? It was our Lord's choosing and our Lord's willing that save Noah and his family. Yeah, and this is over and over again thematic in the scriptures that he chose Israel not for anything they had done. He chose the 12 not for anything they had done and then I chose you, you did not choose me. Yeah, amen. And then in the uh, apostolic sermon in Acts that it is God who draws to himself those who are being saved. Well, let's let him draw on here just for a few more minutes. His wording is a little interesting, but his intent here is clear. And what he is saying, making this connection between Noah and the water in the ark there, and God saving Noah through that, and the water of baptism corresponding to the waters of the flood, in that we are saved through the water, as Paul says, when we are baptized, we identify with Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. Because we've been identified with Christ, we are now choosing Christ, we are saved by him, we are on the side of God in that sense. And this, I think, is what Peter is referring to here as well. Yeah, I don't know how much you're going to make us drone on with him, but the, uh, <laughs> even the very presupposition of his approach simply makes each individual the interpreter of Scripture right. according to their own desire of faith and what God might consider a clean conscience. And there is no discussion of submitting to the word of God, uh, even at the most base level. He simply, he's dismissing Peter, even in his words, well, it, what he intended is good, even though his words are not. I mean, this is a holy apostle that this man has decided to say, you know, he could have been clear here. Well, for whom? For, for you and the way you want things to be done, or for the whole church of God and how God wants things to be done. All right, I will, I will, I see your eyes, I will, I will change gears. How's that, all right? Now, where we're going to go to next, again, the subject is baptism, and this is going to be more of your trendy guy, uh, which means that he has, uh, you know, cool tattoos that, uh, you know, that he always shows off, and uh, tight skinny jeans, and... Uh, He's, we we hate skinny jeans. Oh, and he's a sneakerhead, so uh, you know he's going to be wearing a, a brand new pair of sneakers, oh. Air Jordans back in the day, that type thing. So uh, even though the first guy a uh, little bit boring, uh, but at least he's he's got some commitment to the text. He at least wants to wrestle with it. Right. Okay, that's a much better way of saying it. He wants to wrestle with it, even though going back to Boyle's point, Pastor Boyle here, uh, you know. He's coming to the table, so to speak, with his mind already made up. Yeah. Yeah, but the problem, so this frustrates me. This is a personal pet peeve, but he doesn't actually know what he's talking about. He has done a quick Google search. He's found some, some texts. He's listened to some evangelical rabbi or something talk about the historical context. 
he has no idea. And there is no primary firsthand wrestling with it. Yeah. I think it's all a facade. And every time it gets a bit dicey where he's not quite sure where it's going to go, he simply calls it technical or theological. And you can come and talk to him afterwards where he will make you feel totally inferior and he will not actually deal with the depth of the theology which is in the text itself. Mm. Well, all right. Good point. Let's move now to our next guy. Follow suit. Follow suit. If you're taking notes, write that down. Get your phones out. All of the notes for today's message are in the LifePoint app. You can follow along, but follow suit. What does it mean to follow suit? It if means you shut up. What? Just shut up. You don't like it no, already? I, I already don't like I like the other guy better. Oh, <laughs> I did get my phone out, though. I felt compelled. Well, okay. Now, here's the deal. I do I do feel the need to set this up. So everything <laughs> is in the, evangelical world, in the evangelical world, you know what you've got. You, everything is broken down by series. And so it's four to five weeks. And so it's this catchy, little thought-provoking way in which to house uh, four or five sermons on a given theme or topic. Sure. You can file it away and you don't have to revisit it. There you go. There you go. Which I think is interesting because we in the one, who follow the one-year lectionary, I mean, we have a series. It just happens to be 52 weeks, you know, long. Amen. Uh, so this is all about, about playing cards. Everything in this sermon series was about playing cards, and so that's how okay. he's going to introduce it, and that's the whole following suit. All okay. right. If you are playing a game of cards, there you go. following suit means you are going to play the same card that the person in front of you played. So let's, uh, for example, anybody likes to play spades here? Anyone play spades? Okay, okay. So if your partner leads with, let's say your partner leads with, we've got a, well, that's a spade. Let's pick a different one. If your partner leads with hearts, if you're going to follow suit, that means you need to play a what? Heart. Exactly, exactly. Unless you don't have any and then you play a spade. And so following suit means you're going to follow the example of the person that went before you. That's what... You, you had something already? Is, is this still on an amped up speed? Or is this literally <laughs> how he talks? It is 1.15. Holy cow. That, that's incredible. This is... I mean, this is incredible. What? <laughs> what is, what's wrong? He... Is he on crack? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think currently. <laughs> oh. I don't think so. All, all right. right, go on, go all on. All right, all right. Before you, that's what following suit means. And if we're going to live an all-in life for Christ, then we've got to ask the question, how do I follow the example of Jesus who's gone before us? How do I follow suit? And being a follower of Jesus means that I need to live in a way that reflects Jesus. So I'm going to test your memory. The very first part of this series, we talked about when Jesus was recruiting his disciples. He recruited them with a simple invitation, two words. He said this. He said, follow what? Follow me. That was the invitation of Jesus. It was an invitation to follow. These disciples didn't know where this invitation was going to take them. And if you continue to read through the gospels, you read about the story of Jesus and you read that Jesus goes to the cross. He's, uh, he's, he dies on the cross. His body is placed in a tomb. He is alive again on the third day. It's called the resurrection. And these disciples were so convinced that Jesus is the son of God that when persecution broke out, they ran for their life, but they took the message of Jesus with them to every town that they went. 
They became missionaries and they started churches and they spread not only the message of Jesus, but they lived the example of Jesus. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, that they lived so much like Jesus, they got labeled for it. Let me show you this. We're told in Acts eleven twenty six that for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul, they met with the church and they taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So when they got to Antioch, they lived so much like Jesus. They followed his example that they got labeled for it. And here's the thing. It wasn't a good thing. It wasn't like, oh man, you guys are trying so hard to look like Jesus. We'll call you Christians. Christian means little Christ or like Christ. They were mocking them. You live so much like that man that suffered and died and people claim that he rose again. We're going to label you Christians. It was a derogatory term, but they wore it like a badge of honor because they lived so much like Christ. You could say they modeled Jesus's lifestyle and they followed suit. And the same invitation to them is given to you and I today, that if we want to experience God's plan in the same way, we've got to follow suit. So today I want us to talk about what does it mean for us to follow suit or follow the instructions of Jesus? Okay, so before we listen to him, what, what does it mean to, to follow suit? What do you think? Well, he just spent the last 40 minutes setting that up. <laughs> that was that, that long? <laughs> we, we, we should die and we should rise. And so we, that's following suit. That's following suit. Die and rise. And we shouldn't Amen. be outside the tomb weeping because Jesus didn't do that. So, yeah, what does it mean to follow suit? And apparently the apostles who fled in fear did not follow suit, and yet he says they did. Yeah, there's all sorts of things that are wrong with his setup. This is nothing than a regurgitated what would Jesus do sort of thing. It is, and it builds the listener up to say, yeah, I can agree with this, and I can be this, and I can do this. And if it's classical American evangelical style, they will simply be able to determine what this is. Having heard the sermon, I can tell you uh, where he's going with this. This is what happens in the evangelical world. You can get people saved left and right. I mean, you can get them to make a decision for Jesus. And they come down the aisle and blah, 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 fill out the card, throw the stick in the fire, whatever it happens to be. But then you have to come back and you have to make another appeal for baptism. Mm. So this is what this is. It is regarding following suit following Jesus into the waters of baptism, because we've got a lot of people saved, but we don't have nearly the same numbers that are being baptized. And so that's what we got to do. And the great news is we don't have to wonder what did Jesus mean when he gave us this, uh, this call to follow him? He, he actually was very upfront about it. See, after his resurrection and before he ascended to heaven, he spent time with his closest followers and he gave them very specific instructions. We find this in Matthew chapter 28. If you got your Bibles, I want you to go there or you can open your Bible app. But in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, we're told that Jesus came to his disciples and he said to them, look at what he said. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There is no greater authority than all authority in heaven and on earth. And here's what he says. He says, therefore, therefore, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then he said this, and I will be with you always to the very end of the age. He gives them three instructions. He says, I want you to follow my example in three ways. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to make disciples. That's salvation. The second thing you're going to do is you're going to baptize these new followers of Jesus. This is, they're going to identify with me through baptism. And the third thing you're going to do is you're going to learn to obey what Jesus said. This is a, a classical for him to set it up 
but there's no content in what's being said. And he totally ignores, I see Pastor Boyle looking up the Matthean passage, he makes um, no mention that it was specifically mentioned that the 11 were there and that it wasn't this general command to the, the church or to all um, believers or disciples that it's, this was specifically the 11, but ignoring that and being able to, to call it the Great Commission, which, if memory serves correctly, that comes out of the Baptist tr- tradition in the 1800s, the Great Commission, in, as opposed to what might be termed the Apostolic Commission. It allows the listener and this preacher to be an authority unto themselves. If I feel that I am doing this or think that I'm doing this or can even mentally um, kind of prove it in a rational sort of way, well, then there's no one, including the scriptures or the church or God himself, to tell me that I've done it incorrectly. Wonderful point. Uh, but did you hear the, the, the problem with what he set up? He said, this has intrigued me ever since I've heard this sermon, making disciples, that's salvation. Baptism it stands alone, so that's so that's number two, and then obedience uh, obedience to yep. what Jesus said is number three. The problem there is when Jesus says make disciples, he actually tells you the two things that make disciples. Yes, right. which is baptism and the teaching. Right. Yes, instead yeah. of this step one, step two, step three. Exactly. And then the teaching, first of all, he totally obliviates the teaching. He wants us to be learning uh, on our end. But then obedience is, for him, it seems to be the underlying rubric for how we do this. What I love about this is that it's the apostolic command, so to the apostles, to baptize and to teach. But it's teaching them and the Greek word here is terrain, which is where we get thesaurus as, a, as an English word, but we also get treasury from this. It is teaching them to treasure all that I have given you. Or to open up the treasury of all mm-hmm. that I have given you. Yes. Well, isn't that picked up in uh, Mary's words where she, or, or, or what is said about Mary and that she treasured all of these things in her heart. Amen. It's, it's the same word there. To keep in this way is to treasure these things as the truth. And so it's, it's not primarily an act of obedience in, in terms of our moral life. It is primarily a hearing of the word and rejoicing in what he says. And neither is it a simple transmission of do's and don'ts, a a simple transmission of knowledge or just of the right things to say or the right way to say things. Uh, Too often Christianity takes on this idea of of more like the university where I'm just going to teach you the subject matter and once you have some sort of tacit mastery over the subject matter, then you're just good to go and you can always fall back on the subject matter rather than having, as St. Mary has, a treasury of these things in her heart so that then out of faith comes the obedience. Which, by the way, St. Paul calls faith, right, the, the obedience of faith. You're going to live a, what Jesus says. You're going to live a life that looks a lot like Jesus. And so for 2,000 years, this has been the example that we've been given to follow. And so the question that we're going to ask today is, how close am I following this example of Jesus? How close are you following suit to the instructions of Jesus. 
I would say it's interesting, just on a very side note, that we haven't even gotten to the subject at hand, the reason for this podcast, which was baptism. It just goes to show you how different the approach to Holy Scripture is in the different realms of what we might call Christendom. It's pretty profound. And, and what I flagged you for, Pastor Kearns, was I want to see what he looks like. Because <laughs> the obedience of Jesus or the following in the way that he led, does he look cruciform? Does he look like he's suffering? Yeah, how does he interpret the Son of Man has no place to lay his head? <laughs> it's interesting. Or does he have skinny jeans and jeans that he should have bought half off because they've got rips in them and so forth? It's the latter. Okay. <laughs> so in order to answer that, I want to give you three questions. These are three for you to wrestle with on your own. If you've not thought about these three questions, I want today to be the day that you begin thinking about it. Question number one, when trying to ask ourselves, how, how well am I doing at following suit? Question number one is this, is Jesus my Lord and Savior? Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Nobody can answer this for you. This is a decision that all of us must come to on our own. And what I mean by this is, has there ever been a time when you repented of your sin, you put your faith and trust in Jesus? The Bible says that we declare with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, and that when we do, we are saved. We can have confidence in our salvation. And so my question is, has there ever been a moment when you realize that you are a sinner in need of a savior? I would take you back to January 26, 1981. I was a young kid. I was sitting on the edge of my parents' bed. I had questions about... All right, we don't need to hear about his, uh, uh, you know, his testimony experience there. What do, you, what do you think about that? We'll let, we'll let him drone on in the background while we talk. It's so non-pulse because everyone feels bad about things they have done. And just to equate our bad feelings or even a false guilty conscience, maybe it wasn't even wrong what we did, but we've been made to feel bad about it, or we, we caused some harm because we stuck to the truth. That's simply, simply this idea of sin that uh, it's whenever you have felt bad about what you have done, is, and, and then you need someone to come along and pat you on the shoulder and say, yeah, what you did was bad, but it's okay. Um, go ahead and buck up a little bit, and um, we'll get through this, is... It's a therapeutic Christianity. All right, so now he's on to the second thing. Years of pastor okay. here at LifePoint and eight years of youth ministry prior to that is that this is the step where most people stop following. Most people will say, I want to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. If what the Bible says is true, everyone spends eternity somewhere, either separated from God in a very real place called hell or with God in a real place called heaven. Most of us are like, I want to go to heaven. I put my trust in Jesus, but I don't want to take any more steps. I, I don't want to go any further. And I would challenge you on that. And I would say, why is it that many people say yes to Jesus, but say no to obedience? We need to follow suit. Uh, this connects it to the previous speaker that uh, he has these intangible things that he says, thankfully, are very real, heaven and hell. And yet, as he's probably going to go as the last gentleman did, that the very tangible thing of holy baptism, well, that's not actually real. I wish when he talked about following suit, he was talking more about playing cards. <laughs> you, you think you got uh, more mileage yeah, out of that? I think so. Maybe wear a suit. I'd rather play spades or hearts or euchre or something like that. But you see what he's done here. He's taken salvation as this, as I said earlier, step one, step two, step three. Step one is making Jesus Christ Lord of your life. 
Number two is now following Jesus in the model that he gave of being baptized. Yes. They right. don't they don't see those things as as combined. Sure, and it, it demotes salvation from Almighty God to this lowest common denominator, which is horrendous. And if I get in by believing without baptism or by choosing or making a decision, whatever it is, why do I need to follow? What what would be the point of following Jesus? Do I get extra credit? Maybe. All right, and to your point earlier, Pastor Kearns, that uh, he's setting it up this way because they have a whole lot of people who are saved, but very few of those then are baptized. What he's trying to do in in a larger sense is avoid the loss of membership. Why should I continue to go to church? Why do I need to listen to skinny jeans? Why can't I simply do what I want to do, having made that decision or felt bad about my sins and been comforted by our Lord? Or why should I keep giving to him? Yeah, I think there's a Pastor Boyle, you should not give to him. A dollar sign here. Now, a lot of times people say, "Well, I don't, I don't think I'm ready for that commitment." To which I would say, baptism is not a commitment; it's an expression of a commitment. See, salvation is very private. You could make a decision to trust Christ, and nobody else could know it. But there should come a point when you let your friends and your family know. Which you- always trips me out, right? With the <laughs> Ethiopian eunuch. I mean, yeah. who in the world? saw his public display of his wanting to be on Team Jesus. Right. Other than Philip and maybe the guy driving the chariot. Well, it's also an assumption that you're ashamed of the faith and you need to come out of the closet and tell your family and tell your friends and go ahead and embrace this odd and yet good way of living. It's 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 just uh it's a mess. It's tactless. It's a mess. It's a mess. Yeah, amen. And so salvation is private, but baptism is public. And following Jesus, it's this journey of next steps. All of us have a next step. And if you said yes to Jesus, your immediate next step, as soon as possible, is to get baptized, is to tell the world, I'm living for Jesus. But sadly, so many people never take that step. Why? Why don't they take that step? It's because they've been sold a bill of goods that says, just pray the sinner's prayer. I mean, for crying out loud, Pastor Lovett, you grew up in Texas in a Baptist church. I mean, say the sinner's prayer and get saved by golly. Well, sure. And, and that is, ironically, according to him, a private matter. So who invited me to say this prayer? Probably the pastor who had you walk an aisle right. in front of everybody, right? And then and after you said it, they they told everybody they told what, everybody in the church that you, that's what I was going to say. That little Mark Lovett just accepted Jesus. Yeah, there's then the announcement of all these new believers. I it's a it's a it's a card trick, ha! Huh. It it is a card trick. There it is. It's a Ponzi it's scheme. Also, totally American. In, in its individualistic sure. drivenness. Sure, and we've exported this all over the world. And so, how am I doing in following suit? Is Jesus my Lord and Savior? Have I put my trust in him? Have I ever been baptized? And then here's number three. Am I growing in my understanding and application of Scripture? Meaning, am I beginning to get in God's Word? Because when I get in his Word, his Word begins to get in me. Now, some of us would say, Pastor, I've tried And I don't even know where to start. I mean, there's a lot of pages, and they're really thin, and the font is so small. Why my font got to be so small? We've all tried, haven't you? You picked it up like any other book, and you're like, I'm going to read this. And you got into Genesis, you're like, this is cool. Well, that's crazy. That's where that story came from. Then you got to Exodus, you're like, I've seen the movie. And then you got to Leviticus, and you were like, whoa. All right. 
So I think I I recall where he's going with this. He's um, going to tell some stories and things like that. But he is going to get to... Oh, he, what he does is, is he goes through the book of Acts. Now, gratefully, to his credit, he goes through the book of Acts when he's talking about baptism. Because as I said, this sermon is not about step one. It's not really about what he's talking about now, step three. It really is about you getting baptized if you haven't done so. Well... Actually, even if you have done so, we encourage you to get baptized (laughs) too. But he's going to get here to the end, and he's going to address some questions. And I wanted you to hear the the common questions that he gets and how he responds. Yes, sir. Interesting. As a side note, he he walks through the book of Acts, which is called the Acts of the Apostles. So baptism is an act of the apostles upon those whom the Lord calls to himself. Which dovetails into your point uh, regarding the quote-unquote Great Commission. Yeah, right, the Apostolic Commission. Amen. I love it. And if you've never had a chance to come to one of our beach parties, listen, I'm telling you, ain't no party like a baptism party because a baptism party don't stop. What? Yeah, no, I'm telling you, it's a good time. This it guy is, is an killing me. Amazing time. And I show you this because for most people, here's the thing. For most people, they say, yes, I want my sins forgiven. Yes, I want to live for Jesus. No, I don't want to get baptized. And I'm like, why? It doesn't make any sense. And a lot of times people are like, well, I'm a pastor, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm still working on some stuff. Or they say, listen, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be a hypocrite. Church has got enough of them already. I don't feel worthy. I don't want to be in front of people. I, I don't know the Bible very well. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Maybe I got baptized as a baby. I don't understand it. Or maybe I went through confirmation and got baptized. I don't know if I should do that again. And so what happens is our questions keep us from walking in obedience. And I want to remind you, we are called to live by faith, to walk by faith and not by sight. And when you walk by faith, you're not going to have it all figured out. But what you're going to do is you're going to say yes to the instructions of Jesus. So as we close our time, I want to I talk about a few of the questions that come up a lot when we talk about baptisms. And so the first one is this. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, what, what? you keep saying baptism, but what even is baptism? What even is it? Baptism is this. Here's a working definition for baptism. It is an outward expression of an inward confession. What do I mean outward expression of an inward confession? That rhymes, but what does that mean? Inwardly, I have made a decision. I, I've confessed and professed my faith in Jesus Outwardly, I'm getting baptized to show the world what's happened in my heart. Think about a baptism. If you've never seen it, let me explain real quick. Somebody is either sitting in a, in a tank, standing in a tank, maybe standing in the ocean, standing in a pool. And so we would typically ask, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? And if you have, you'd say yes. Do you promise to follow him all the days of your life? And if you do, you say yes. Then we say, based upon your profession of faith in Jesus, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Should sound familiar. We read that in a a passage in Matthew. And so then what we do is we lower you under the water, symbolic of being buried to your old ways, buried to your sin. And then quickly, and I add quickly, because some people are like, how long are you going to hold me down there? Quickly pull you back up out of the water, symbolizing your new life in Christ. Oh, that drives me crazy. I can't stand listening to him. (laughs) Neither can Pastor Bruss. You too. I, I I don't know how people do this. Symbolically, though, yeah, it's symbolic. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. It's it's not quite as extreme, perhaps, as like the Muslim religion that heard a lot of Christianity and a lot of the Old Testament stories, and then went this bizarre way with all of them. So you can see some smatterings of of, of connectivity. 
But it is very uh, similar to that in that the, he, he, and I would argue that ilk of preacher and church, is taking a lot of stuff they have heard or things like Pastor Boyle said they've, they've YouTubed or they've Googled, and they have a lot of words that they're throwing around that sound very Christian, and they put them together in an utterly unapostolic way. Just completely devoid of any sort of historicity, uh, devoid really of... Um well, as you said, I mean, the apostolic teaching. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, he says, you, all these questions, why are you questioning? We live by faith, which seemed to say the faithful never have any questions. And then he immediately says, sure, you're going to have some questions. So there's, a, there's an inconsistency in his ability to wrestle with the things that he purposefully does not want to pick up. That's what it is. It's an outward profession or an outward expression of this Inward transformation. Baptism is telling the world, listen, I'm not perfect, but I am forgiven. I think of it like, it's a lot like a, like a wedding ring, okay? I wear this black silicone wedding ring. I had a gold one. I was given a gold one June 6, 1998 from my wife. It was the day we, we got married. And I now wear this black one because I got tired of taking the gold one off every day at the gym. I didn't want to mar it up. And so now I wear this one because I don't have to take it off. But if you think about this ring for just a moment, the day we exchange rings, could you imagine if they're in front of God? My pastor, friends and family, my wife hands me this ring and I'm like, is it cool with you if I just put that in my pocket? I don't really want to wear it. I'd rather people not know. If we could just keep this marriage on the DL, are you good with that? Ladies now, are like, no way. I, I'm going to let him go on in the background here. Uh, the reason it is, uh, the reason I am is because Pastor Bruss and I and Pastor Oakry, I believe, we did an entire podcast on four or five, it might have been six, six different guys who always use the wedding ring analogy to comes from refer Rick, to baptism. Rick Warren. Rick Warren. Very exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Wear this ring to symbolize our commitment. Now, I can take this ring off. I'm just as married. I could give this ring to a single dude. It doesn't make him married, but it's a symbol. It's like when I, when I tried out for the varsity baseball team and made it, there's the day they passed out the jerseys. Oh, and this is his favorite one to go to. I've heard him talk about this before. You know, again, and this comes from Pastor Bross, being on Team Jesus. Baptism is just, you know, recognition that you got the jersey and you're on Team Jesus. Well, it's such a cute little example, but does he always walk around with a shirt that says, I'm baptized? No. How do people know? That's crazy. You wear it to tell people you're on the team. Getting baptized is like, hey, everybody, I'm Team Jesus. There it is. Yeah, Team Jesus. Man, I, I'm not perfect, but I am forgiven. That's what it represents. Like the word baptize, for instance, it's the word baptizo, and it means to dip, to dunk, or to immerse. That's all it means, to get wet. And I... Or to wash. Thank you. <laughs> We've talked about this before. In the evangelical world, there's an email that's gone out that says, this is what baptizo means. And it means to dip, to dunk, or, or uh, whatever, whatever else he said. They never say it means to wash. Yeah. Which is ironic because the last guy talked about First Peter that says not his removal of dirt, which is a, a comment of washing. Right. And I usually, this is where I divide the church. I talk about chicken wings. I'm not going to talk about chicken wings today because then everybody wants to go out and eat chicken wings. And apparently we have a chicken wing shortage in our world. I don't know. I haven't run into it, but talk about how you, you, know, you dip your wing in ranch because it's what Jesus would do, not blue cheese. But I'm not going there because like the ranch people get, up, or get upset at the blue cheese people and vice versa, and I got to spend the next 12 months rebuilding the church. <laughs> so let me use a different example, okay? It would be like going to Chick-fil-A. Let's go there. And you got your waffle fries, 
You're going to take your waffle fries and you would dip, dunk, or immerse them in the greatest sauce that Chick-fil-A has, which is the Chick-fil-A sauce. Some of you said Polynesian. You would be wrong. The Chick-fil-A sauce. Thank you, Chick-fil-A, for selling it in the bottles. We don't have to steal it any longer. You know you got a drawer full of Chick-fil-A sauce. How many sauces do you need? Fifteen. Sir, that's a small fry. Don't judge me. I, I know. I know. We now have it in the large bottle. But when you dip, dunk, or immerse that fry, it comes out covered in Chick-fil-A sauce. When you and I get baptized, we are being baptized into Christ. It means we are covered in Christ. Our life is marked by Christ. That's what it means. That's what it means. So what is baptism? It means to be covered in Chick-fil-A. I mean, where does this, where does this break down? No, no. He totally just undid his whole point. Yes, he did. If to be dipped dunked or immersed in Jesus is to be, in fact, covered with Jesus, then it cannot be a symbol or a representation of Jesus. Yeah, it actually has to do something, like save us. (laughs) (laughs) Which is the the, the first Peter passage again, right? Yeah, what about uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit? I mean, when a French fry goes into the Chick-fil-A sauce, to use this example, I mean, there's nothing going on the inside of this individual. Or, I'm sorry, there's nothing going on the inside of this uh, uh, waffle fry. Right. So, this is the Holy Spirit actually going inside of you, and then on top of that, forgiving your sins. And covering you. Acts chapter 2. Well, and there's an entire other aspect that probably is never discussed, and that, that is they keep saying this faith is private and whatnot, but whose faith are we baptized by? Isn't it the faith of the, of the people preaching baptism? Aren't they bringing us to baptism? Um, don't we bring our children to baptism? There's the great uh, narrative of our Lord healing the paralytic. The text says that Jesus saw the faith of his friends and said to the man, your sins are forgiven. So it's the faith of the church, which is by no means private. If it were private, we wouldn't have martyrs. So there's no such thing as private faith, and baptism isn't my expression of faith. It's the church's confession that we have a clean conscience before God. And to that point, I mean, heaven is not private. Right. Nor is hell. Nor is Jesus. You're nor, the author and perfecter of our faith. Nor would this man, whoever he is, and I don't know who he is. Oh, but you love him. He would not eat a waffle fry symbolically dipped in. All right. In whatever it is, Chick Fil A sauce. sauce. Yeah. yeah. Why doesn't he symbolically? It has eat the to fry? be really dipped in yeah. Chick Fil A sauce for him to eat it. And so, same with baptism. You can't symbolically be dipped in baptism in Christ. You have to be really dipped in Christ. All of this is simply a desire to rid ourselves of the authority of God through his church and through the means that he has given for salvation. That's all this is. Covered in Chick-fil-A. I mean, you, you get it, right? Second question that I get a lot is, Pastor, I, I grew up in a church where I was dedicated or baptized or christened as an infant, or maybe I went through confirmation, and at the end of that, everybody got baptized. Do I need to do it again? I don't know anything about confirmation and then being baptized. I don't know if that's Greek or Orthodox. He doesn't either. Well, <laughs> it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. I, I, I it's never been so. a thing. I, I hear you, but he's, he's throwing out these words that for the people who may have gone through confirmation, you know, they're hearing these things, and, you know, he's supposedly the authority. But regardless, 
somebody comes to him and says, I was baptized as a child. What would you tell this individual? That they've been di- dipped in Chick-fil-A sauce. Already. Yeah. <laughs> and Already. They, they don't need to be dipped again. Yeah, no. right. Or washed, as the word means. No, certainly not again. There's one baptism. One? That's what St. Paul says in Ephesians 4. But he only says that one time, Pastor Boyle. (laughs) He doesn't say that 25 times. Because he doesn't do it 25 times. (laughs) (laughs) Because he only needs to say it one time, right? Yeah, right. All right, let's see how he would answer. That's a great question, and only you can answer that for yourself. I would tell you that in Scripture, (laughs) baptism always follows salvation. That's the order. We put our trust in Christ and then get baptized. As an infant... You did not make that decision for yourself. Your parents, in love, made a decision to, bapti- or to, to christen or dedicate or baptize you. Or dip you. But what it was was more of a promise to raise you in a home that was going to honor the Lord. This is a, an off-used objection to this. But it, it, the analogy which our Lord uses in John 3 is of a new birth. But no baby decides to be conceived and then born. No birth is our promise to raise this child as a human. This this simply denies that baptism belongs to God, and instead it puts it in the hands of the individual believer, that this is my thing that I could use or not use. I might be better or worse for either decision, but there's no submission to the will of God in this. To be very pointed about it, this is an abortion of the new birth in the Spirit. And I would say that you getting baptized is actually the fulfillment of your parents' intention. So I would say that, yes, this is your next step. This abortion here that's taking place, he is encouraging these folks. He's putting really a burden upon them that doesn't need to be there. They already are baptized. There's one baptism, one faith, one Lord. Yeah, and he's taking immediately away the Apostle Peter's comfort that this is an appeal to a clean conscience. It's no longer that at all. Now this is an appeal to my ability to stand up inside of baptism. And if you continue in a church like this, you would hear, okay, so let's say there is somebody who is confirmed. Let's just use a Lutheran church because there's no doubt that there are our Lutheran kids who were catechized and they are in these churches. And so they hear a sermon like this and they realize, man, I was baptized as a child. Uh, you know, but now I'm really, really serious about being on Team Jesus. Right. So let me go ahead and be baptized again. Well, what's to say that five, ten years later, they don't come to the exact same conclusion and realize, you know, when I made that decision back five, ten years ago, like I'm really in love with Jesus now. <laughs> Even more so than I was back then in my 20s. So now I probably need to be baptized again. I mean, at what point does one rest and take comfort in their baptism when you, have, when you were subjugated to preaching like this? But why would you take comfort in your baptism if it doesn't do anything? Well, fair enough. You, you take comfort in your emotional status right, right now. Right. And why would you take comfort in this person's preaching when after every large conclusion he says, this is a matter for you? So he the instructor doesn't even know what he's instructing. There's no confidence anywhere except to be driven into my own heart. I have to find orthodoxy within myself. Well, there's no doubt in the evangelical world, I mean, the throne room... Where Jesus sits is is in your heart. Yes, right. And actually, you're the one 
who actually sits on the throne. We've made Jesus, Jesus. Lord of our life, and I'm going to tell him what to do. <laughs> now, if you maybe went through a confirmation and you got baptized maybe around the age of 12, I would say, did you understand what you were doing? Had you put your trust in Christ or were you just following the example, following suit? Do you ever really know? And, and to what extent? Okay, you're 12. Do you really know what you're getting into? No. What about 14? No. 21? No. Who knows? I mean, even now, when you're 30s, 40s, do you really know? And to what extent? And who's holding that checklist? Well, love it. I've heard you make this uh comment before you know here we are asking these kids who go through our confirmation classes to make these uh decisions these confessions unto death upon pain of death right yes they're 13 years old 14 years old yeah well and 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 likewise you're first getting married Do, do you know what you're promising and what this is holds in store for you and later do you realize you know what i didn't know maybe i should be married again but not to this person because i didn't know so i'm going to divorce this person and marry this other this whole thing is just riddled with nothing but self-aggrandizement and i am righteously angry (laughs) well this always happens you know when i play these sermons for uh other Lutheran, fellow Lutheran pastors, you know, it's like they always start out, especially Oakry. Oakry likes to start out like, oh, you know, I mean, that's a that's a common mistake. It's no big deal. And then about 15, 20 minutes into it, he's like, I am totally pissed off. Yeah, right. This, right. or as John Bruss would say, this is of the devil. <laughs> yeah. I, I want the other preacher, by the way. Oh, you do? Yeah, amen. Well, hold on here. He's got to finish up. And if you would say, listen, I didn't understand what I was doing, then I would say your next step is to get baptized. A good example of this is my wife. Several uh, years back, 2015, I believe so I had the again, we, we, you got to have these stories in here interlaced. Uh, he's talking about his wife, who was raised in what I can understand as he talks. Um, you know, she was raised in probably a more orthodox uh, situation. She was baptized early on. And then as she continued to go on in her evangelical days, uh, she realized, I probably need to get baptized too. And so he talks about having, uh, getting the opportunity to baptize her at the ocean. You're not going to let you know, your pride or other people's thoughts keep you from being obedient to Jesus. And so I had the privilege of one of our beach baptisms to be able to celebrate her putting her trust in Christ. And it is so amazing to be able to baptize my wife. But see, her trust was already there. Yeah, right, right. Why is, she, why is her trust now in baptism? It's not. Yeah, to quote Pastor Boyle, this is a mess. It's a mess. So if you have not been baptized since you put your trust in Christ, that is your next step. One question I get frequently is, what if I'm still struggling with stuff? Who's not? Yeah, right. Not not this guy, apparently. He's got it all figured out. I don't feel like I'm ready. I would just say to you, the only prerequisite for baptism is salvation. The only prerequisite for baptism is salvation. I mean, think about it. How much stuff do you have to have right in your life before you tell people you're forgiven? You're still working on it. You're always going to work on it. If we said the only people that can sign up for the baptism at the beach are those who are perfect, guess how many baptisms we would have? Zero. That's not a standard found in Scripture. And so we baptize you based upon your profession of faith in Jesus, not your, perfect, your perfection in living out all of this instructions. And so I would tell you, have you said yes to Jesus? If so, your next step is baptism. Next question that I get a lot is, but what if I don't get baptized? 
Pastor, what if I don't get baptized? This is usually asked from a place of fear. Maybe I'm afraid of being in front of people. I'm afraid of people seeing me soaking wet. I'm afraid, you know, there's all kinds of things. What, what if I don't? And what they're asking is, if I don't get baptized, do I still get to go to heaven? <laughs> That's what I really want to know. Am I going to get to the pearly gates and they'll be like, ah, oh, no heaven for you. You didn't get baptized. Is that what's going to happen? And I would tell you that you, you still go to heaven if you don't get baptized. You don't have to get baptized to go to heaven. And I would point to the thief on the cross. I don't have time to go there, but if you can, you know, think about this moment. Jesus is on the cross. There's a thief on his right and his left. They're both hurling insults. One comes to the conclusion that Jesus is the son of God. He says to him, will you remember me in paradise? What a bummer it would be if Jesus was like, yeah, if you'll just get baptized real quick. Be like, yeah, you know, we don't have time to go to it because we got to do these intros about car playing, uh, you know, uh, playing spades. We got to tell, uh, you know, right. stories about our wife. We don't have time to go to that. Well, it, it's 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 ridiculous. The, the the thief on the cross, perhaps he actually was baptized. Yeah, how do we right? know he yes. wasn't baptized? Yeah. yeah, right. And and everybody goes to this example. But what uh, he's just exactly. said is, you you can have faith, but you don't have to be obedient. So never mind the Apostle Paul's words, the obedience of faith. Never mind the, the Apostle Paul's words in the epistle to the Hebrews, because yes, he wrote it, that uh, Jesus learned obedience by what he suffered. And baptism is being buried with Christ. Baptism is the suffering of the Christian in the sense that it's the death of the old Adam, the flesh and the passions of the flesh. None of that. You can have faith and not be obedient. You can be married and hate your wife. Yeah. Well, I would love to add, you know, the let's say the thief on the cross was not baptized. Let's just pretend. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, allows you to circumvent baptism, then you're golden. But there's no, but in, that's not going to happen for anybody. Well, else. In, it is precisely in baptism that Jesus says to you Today you will mm. be with me in paradise. Amen. Yes. All right. That's where those words are spoken to you. Amen. That's beautiful. It is. And see, if it was preached like that, if it was preached like that. It is preached like that. Well, okay, I'm talking about guy. in churches like this uh, that we're listening to. If it was preached like that, you wouldn't have a discrepancy between I've accepted Jesus and I need to be baptized. See, between right. step one and step two, there's the, the numbers are off. Right. But if you preached it like that, which is correct, it would be a one-to-one -one correlation. It would be. It would be that Jesus is all in all, which is also apostolic. Be like, man, I kind of got a thing going on. But what did he say? He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. But here's what I want you to know, because some of you were like, sweet, okay, no baptism for me then. I would say you will never walk in power if you don't walk in obedience. Let me say it again. You will never walk in power if you don't walk in obedience. You'll never. So, so here we are. We're, we're the fan, so to speak, uh, or maybe the generator. You're the generator that's not plugged up, right? Or, no. or the generator without the gas. Let's call it what it is. This is witchcraft. Oh, this is a desire for a spirit to enable you to have power that you are not granted because you're human. This is a beyond human power, but Jesus is human, and he has all authority. This, so this preaching is witchcraft. If you perform the rites based on your own desire, you will receive the power to do the things only God can do. But Pastor Lovett, there's thousands of churches that are just like this. And this is exactly what they're hearing 
when the topic goes to baptism. Well, yes, you are right. That is true. But it, it changes nothing. What does it say about our country? What does it say about the state of Christianity in our world? And then, of course, we're exporting this all over the world. Well, sure, it, it, it doesn't say anything about Christianity because at best because it's, it's not Christianity, well, right? Well, I, I don't want to say these people have no faith, right? Right in the in the the gospel is being preached there. That's sure. That's at least the in the good simplicity news. of Jesus dying and rising right. bodily, and both these gentlemen have made comment of the physical resurrection, right? Um, but they've they they are simply riding a horse they have no control over, and they they don't. They don't know what they're saying, as Pastor Boyle said earlier. They have no idea what they're saying. Mm. It's a mess. (laughs) (laughs) Or if you don't walk in obedience, you'll never walk out your identity if you don't make a declaration. I am in Christ and he is in me. And baptism tells the world I'm living for Jesus. I'm not perfect, but I am forgiven. Now, the last question that I'll cover as we close is this. Sometimes people say, you know, Pastor, I've been baptized but I've never been baptized at the beach and I'd love it. I think it'd be awesome. I really love the beach. It's kind of my, my, my place and you know, I feel the Lord there. And, can I, and I would say, listen, if you've been baptized after you said yes to Jesus, you do not need to get baptized at the beach. Not necessary. I would say no, because it's not about collecting experiences. It's not like, oh, well, this pin is for the beach and this pin's for Pine Valley. And then I heard Porter's Neck was doing it and so I rushed over there. It's not like that. It's a one and done. It's I'm telling the world I'm living for Jesus. It's one and done. Then let it be one and done. Yeah, amen. Why why not at the at the infancy or the confirmation or wherever he said where you may not yet totally grasp it. Yes. Let it be one and done. So even as the person is baptized as a baby, one and done. Amen. One and done. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. You you're right. What you bring up here for me is the fact that what he just said here doesn't that discount what he said earlier about if you were baptized or uh, you know as a yes. baby or something like yes. that? So it totally destroys that. Well, but he can't help but contradict himself. Well, go, okay, go fair, fair, fair. But I do agree with him that you know, gratefully, he did say if you've already been baptized, this is not um, you know what is a did he say and a collecting of experiences? Sure. Uh, it reminds me of the time where I went with a bunch of evangelicals to Israel, and uh, you know we go to the Jordan River, and uh, a lot of the evangelicals there. Guess what they wanted to do? Get baptized. And it was only fifteen dollars, and then a five dollar, uh, you know, renting of a, a of a locker. So it was a really pretty good deal. It's you a know. cheaper baptism than you get in Rome. Or twenty bucks for uh, for a baptism in the Jordan River. And a lot of them signed up, and they, they do it just to be able to say, what? I was baptized in the Jordan River. Yeah, sure. It's, um, so we're being direct, right? This guy's, Pastor Boyle has made his opinion known of this guy, right? It's witchcraft, <laughs> it's abortion, it's adultery. Uh, this is just fornication. So what would you say if it's you... over and over again to get the new experience. Yeah, really. So what would you say if you knew of someone who left your church, for instance... And they were attending a church like this, where the the preaching, at least regarding baptism, was was what you've heard. To quote David Scare, the Reverend Professor at Fort Wayne, "What's with you? <laughs> Why <laughs> are you doing yourself. this? <laughs> there, there is clearly now with baptism a purely symbolic character." 
It is purely symbolic of where I am in life and literally, geographically, perhaps, where I am. But then it's a total disregard for what Christ has promised in baptism. Mm. Amen. With what he has done in terms of the forgiveness of sins, delivery of the Spirit, the speaking of the Father, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That's what's spoken over you in baptism as an infant, wherever you are. Amen. Amen. Love it. Anything else? Uh, no. I, it's, it is a mess out there. And this is why we would encourage any and all of our listeners to make sure that they find their way to a Lutheran church, Missouri Synod, where you can hear law and gospel uh, divided properly and where you will hear that uh, baptism is a gift that God gives uh, to infants, to folks who have Down syndrome. He gives this gift to any and all. They don't have to make a decision for Jesus or understand before they come to those blessed, blessed waters. Thank you very much, Pastor Lovett, for being here with us. And for Pastor Boyle, thank you for being here. And I hope to hear you again on the Pluck Chicken Podcast. You've been listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors Devin Kearns and John Bruss. If you'd like to support the work they do, go to their Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the plucked chicken. Mm-hmm. Say, hey, yeah, 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 yeah.